0: I'm excited to share this fun conversation I had on the Climify podcast recently. Host Eric Benson and I discuss how everyone can be a climate influencer, how a single positive action can create a domino effect, and my favorite topic, what even is a surprising validator? We talk about how naming and faming climate leaders can be such a positive climate influence too. If you'd like to learn how to see through a climate design lens, listen to my interview, and check out Climafy, wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.
1: This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network.
2: Hey, this is Eric. Only two more episodes to go in season three. I started working on this season back in November of 2022. And despite that it's been nine months, it seems like season three is ending so fast. There was a tweet I read a few months ago. Wait, can we still call them tweets? Zeets? I don't know. doesn't matter. But it it said something like, time seemed to crawl by as a child, and then you hit the college years, and the next thing you know, you wake up with a beer gut, and everything in life is just moving way too fast. That's kind of how I feel without the beer gut. Well, anyways, anyway, before I get back to our guest today, Andrea Learned, I wanted to share what's coming in season four. Yes, season four already. We're looking to speak with six design educators who are working on climate justice in action in their own research and teaching. The entire next season will be focused on you, the design educator. We all felt that the episode with Rebecca Mendez and Holly Robbins was really practical, yet inspiring. And we wanted more of that. So if you are interested, reach out to me at E Benson at illinois.edu or message us the climate designers over on instagram or linkedin today i'm joined by a climate powerhouse andrea Lerner, a michigan alum go blue and a climate leadership advisor she helps anyone recognize their social capital and influence to be change agents in the climate activism and entrepreneurship areas her manifesto starts with The power of reflecting your lifestyle to affect change cannot be understood. This is true. I totally agree with that. She goes on to say that the masses no longer pay attention to big, professionally crafted global climate stage moments. Stop wasting your budget there. Climate emergency requires strong individual leadership and influence. It's time for leaders like you to step up and boldly act. Others are noticing your personal choices as a corporate leader. Start using your personal power and values to get louder about climate action. Lead the way and pioneer unapologetic change. Her manifesto helped me in this discussion realize that I can do more to help the climate by just simply being more open about what I do and how. That personal message of change is way more powerful than an expensive campaign by a big company. And even though she talks about corporate this and corporate that, really anyone can do this. This climate leadership can happen in one-on-one conversations or using your social media platforms as megaphones for climate action. I hope you are as inspired by Andrea as I was and become the climate leader you were always meant to be.
0: Hi, I'm Andrea Learned. I am the Living Change Climate Leadership Podcast host, and I am a communication strategist and advisor on how to build climate influence, specifically for leaders, people that are corporate leaders, political leaders, or cultural influencers. I am talking with you today out of lovely, lovely Seattle, and happily been here for about 11 years. Where can you find me? Twitter, until it is no more. LinkedIn. I'm on live, I'm on Instagram at Andrea living change. I'm on TikTok at Andrea is living change. Those are newer platforms for me. So bear with me.
2: Well, welcome Andrea to Climify. I'm happy to have you here. And uh, I'm headed out to Seattle actually next week. So I'll be in your neck of the woods.
0: Great timing. Would you care for recommendations? We can talk about that right after we record. Yes, that would okay. be wonderful. I'm going to say something on. I'm going to say something while we're recording, though, because it has become part of my brand, and that is, you must visit KEXP, the community radio station on Lower Queen Anne. And I will leave it there, and we can talk about it later.
2: Sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, I hope the the weather isn't too hot there, because I know air conditioning is is limited right in the Pacific Northwest, but. It's actually
0: been pretty cool. So hopefully if that continues, you should be okay compared to the Midwest, which I know well from my childhood.
2: Yes. Yes. This yes, I am in the Midwest. I'm in the state of Illinois where I've been for about 16 years. So happy to have you on. And you're another podcaster. I'm talking to another live podcaster here. And what was the name of your podcast again? Because I remember listening to two of the episodes, but now the name has escaped me.
0: Yeah, it's and I will repeat it over and over maybe because it's actually a phrase that I use in my work, which is living change is the right, title. Right, that's right. The, the subtitle is A Quest for Climate Leadership, but I'm often sort of sub, you know, kind of adding some subtext to that, which is I am looking for unusual suspects and surprising validators who are climate leaders. And so if I could have a really long subtitle, that's what it would be. So it's Unusual Suspects. <laughs> surprising validators. Because I'm not talking about the same old, and I say this often, 70-year-old white guys who are on stages at COPS or Climate Week.
2: Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm with you there. This is why this season is so important, because we're elevating so many voices that uh, don't usually get heard in the climate sphere. And your podcast name would be, with the big subtitle, would be Perfect in Academia, but probably not for a mass audience.
0: Well, and already I will say that coming up with the name Living Change was, it was hard because we kept thinking with my producers, large media, we kept thinking, do we have to throw the word climate in? And sure enough, if you look up Living Change on Apple Podcasts, you get a whole bunch of stuff, Living Change, you know, all this stuff. And so I'm constantly saying, okay, when you look it up, look up Living Change Climate and that it will come up. So it's an interesting game that you play, but the living change part, I think for me, and if you look at podcasts overall, is unique. It's we're, I'm really talking about living the change if you're going to be leading in climate. So that's a key point.
2: Yeah. And that's a, a huge a component of the mission of this podcast. And that is we're trying to help design educators become those climate leaders in the classroom and make new climate leaders and so i am extremely interested in your work because you're doing something similar but not necessarily in the design classroom so that's why you're here today and i want to talk to you first actually about your climate change manifesto and the what you call the theory of change and what led you to create those maybe you want to explain what they are first for our listeners
0: yeah and- yeah 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 basically the idea of the manifesto is the power of reflecting your lifestyle to affect change cannot be undersold so people are on stage leading and talking about what they're doing policy-wise or in their corporations but if they aren't also you know thinking about driving less or things that can be seen by their stakeholders that they're doing and being public about that it, you're you're losing some credibility and there is the trust and so everything i'm doing is saying leaders step it up and telling us what you're up to as a human Mm -hmm. because that will help you build resilient trust and that's much more impactful as a leader and so leading the way and pioneering unapologetic change and then the theory of change which is counter to a lot of stuff you see with regard to climate and even people say when they come to listen to my podcast for the first time they're like well it really isn't the doom and gloom you know the typical doom and gloom So my theory of change is to emphasize the yes and, not the, no, we can't do it that way. Right, right. Better, right? Improv comedy, right? Yes and. Exactly. And then the other thing sort of related is this idea that I really emphasize, name and fame. So I will say that politically or when fossil fuel companies are up to their old shenanigans and all these reports are coming out, I get mad, (laughs) you know, and I will name and name and shame, right? But- this is the thing that very few organizations and leaders remember to do, which is name and fame, the good. Yeah. So waiting for the bad news, which man, it's like a fire hose, right? Name and fame. You know what? There is this one mayor in this small town in the Midwest who is doing this, which is the whole point of my guests. It's like, and, and to your point, your future design leaders and in schools Yes, they are going to be total influencers and we should name and fame even now as they're teaching whatever classes they're teaching. Keep your eye out on these people. Name and fame them now to elevate and make more relevant the people who are actually doing stuff as opposed to the masses of people who are not.
2: That's right. I mean, this is something I I think so many people have learned since probably the failure of like some of the early environmental movements is it's not doom and gloom that gets people to act. It's it's the focusing on the solutions and giving them inspiration from people who are doing it. And so if you're listening to this show and you are a design educator doing this good work, we want to name and fame you. So reach out to us either on LinkedIn or or Instagram so we can celebrate the work that you're doing in the classroom. I love that, Andrea. Name and fame.
0: Well, and also I would say these people who are doing this, part of this also is I want them to name and fame one another, right? So we can do it from our platforms because we've been building them. But also, if you start naming and faming each other on whatever social platform, right? If you're on Facebook, if you're on, I don't know, right, where the majority of your audience is hanging out, but call out each other and say, good job. This is part of the thing that I'm talking about with my theory of change is leaders even or competitors, right, should be saying, Wow, you know, the head of this company who's a competitor of mine is doing amazing stuff and that's really inspiring. There's no downside to that. Yeah. Yeah, naming and naming one another, I think.
2: Well, we are also all, all about practicality here on the show. And you you have some startling statistics, I would say, on in some of the things I was reading and listening to, and when it comes to people wanting to be climate leaders, and you talked about climate impact, right? And and something around like less than half feel equipped to lead. I think it's right like 45%. And so I'm wondering, you know, what do these knowledge gaps look like specifically for climate leaders and communities working in and systems change and, and maybe how can we maybe name and fame? Like how do we continually try to overcome those?
0: Well, I think one of the things that I come across a lot is organizations, corporations, they do their messaging and their communication strategies kind of the same way that they've always done it. They aren't maybe helping their leaders or the people who are publicly speaking about these topics kind of keeping them up to date on the latest and really informing them on the things that are working. One of the reasons I think podcasts are so good, right, broadly, is that education, I don't think that a lot of leaders, CEO level or, you know, executive director of a nonprofit are going to be sitting down and just trying to study up, you know, huge big papers or white papers, right? Much as we all are producing white papers that we hope that people are reading, the reality is we know very few people are. So how do we get education, information, new ideas, things that are actually working, in the ear, right? These right. I mean, leaders, and and part of that is they need to go. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Whoever, right, who's also a mayor in some small town, has tried that out and it's worked. Or I had no idea that whatever corporate leader was trying that out and that works. So interviews on podcasts and sharing information in this sort of more informal way and getting those little tidbits, I think, in through podcasts, seeping in, right, rather than a big chunk and a big document you have to read. I think there's huge power in that.
2: You're preaching to the choir here. I'm I, I, <laughs> the, uh, the thing that got me, right, is talking to a lot of climate scientists, in particular, who are writing super important stuff about climate in these white papers, peer-reviewed journal articles, that's not getting out in, in an informal way, like you said. And so I think the power of podcasting, some of the other work that you've talked about in your consulting work, I think is more powerful. I mean, you and I have to read all this stuff to get, to get it out there, but I, I'm right, right. I, I'm with you on that.
0: Yeah, well, and the other thing is, this is one of the reasons that with the corporate and political clients that I work with, Choosing a social media platform, I mean, again, I'm going to say who knows where people are going after Twitter, but finding a social media platform where you can, again, be sort of seeping out or leaking out these bits of information and building kind of engagement because key to my whole theory is that you have to build social capital in order to then activate it when you need it. And so being on a social platform and just becoming the person who's like sharing, hey, right? I just read a really interesting article on whatever, right? And this climate scientist is behind it. It doesn't have to be a 40-page white paper. If you start to help people think for themselves and identify little nuggets of blog posts or whatever written by climate scientists that they can read to at least get vaguely up to speed. So I think there's power in content sharing and engaging on social media and really building a community and then also being on podcasts, listening to podcasts, and helping your friends find podcasts that you're really getting a lot of information from in an enjoyable way, you know?
2: Oh yeah. And and reading between the lines here, it sounds like this is why you're on TikTok now as one of your new platforms.
0: Yes, I'm on TikTok. One of the things is it seems I'm a person who's from an you know, an older generation and I was just like resisting it, right? That's for kids and I don't and, and I went on and I'm still not super comfortable with it, but I understand it from exactly that perspective, which is these smaller little tidbits, i.e. something like, did you know that blah, blah, blah. and you can put a link, you know, in the copy of that TikTok and say, for more, more information, go here. But I've said this a lot recently. There's some study about you need to hear an advertising message seven times in order for it to sink okay. in. And they've never said seven times exactly from the same radio station or whatever. It's just like seven times something has to be seeping into your brain. And so if you're reading stuff by me or other people, and then you hear a TikTok and I say something, you know, one of my big causes is a a food systems transition more towards a plant-based, I mean, we can talk about that later. We will. You know, if you're hearing little bits and pieces about that from all sorts of other sources, You hear it seven times, you might be likely to give plant-based eating a try. You know, so thinking of how advertising messages get, you know, received, are received well, and having us use that with our climate messages.
2: Yeah. And and in your consulting work and I guess also in your podcast, I'm wondering what you're finding as climate educational needs to help build more climate leaders and in the community and maybe in corporations that maybe traditional like going to school type frameworks struggle to meet.
0: I think it, I think part of my thing is that I always sort of step another 30,000 feet above the situation which is when you look at and i monitor climate media a lot and so when you look at climate media just really basically what you see is a lot of coverage of energy right it's very energy and oil and kind of all this and the the thing that i think starts to get people more interested and they find their way in is if you go by the way transportation food systems you know these are some things that are also huge that if you address them it will make a big change oh i had no idea I like to think about food, right? I have a garden, like helping people find other ways in to the significant ways that emissions can be reduced that are not getting the sexy love of all the media coverage. And I think there's something to educators and people, you know, in curriculums and sort of learning how to be climate leaders is going, you know what? You don't have to talk about renewable energy. Talk about the thing that you're really into and bridge help us all bridge understanding about how that's important and why that makes a difference.
2: Yeah, storytelling is is extremely important, and I've had, gosh, man, I, I can't even remember how many guests have brought this up. Maybe almost all of them. I'll just say that. Just at some point, storytelling around climate very important. And so, you've done some work with a group, fifty by forty, and. You spoke about climate conversations and storytelling. Can you give us a kind of a quick crash course, and particularly I'm interesting in this phrase, I'm not sure of where it came from, but surprising validator.
0: Yeah. Well, so I was working with 5540, by 40, which is a food systems transition organization, a couple years back. And one of the things I did was a workshop, an online workshop that people can find and we could put in the notes if you're interested. I talk about climate, the power of climate conversion stories. And the conversion stories are the unusual suspects or the surprising validators. So I'll give you an example. From a food front, that would be somebody who was a cattle rancher. And then they had an awareness, they had a health thing, they realized the climate implications, and somehow they decided to make a transition and start to move away from livestock and animal agriculture. Another example of a surprising validator or an unusual suspect with a, is this good conversion story would be Mayor Eric Adams of New York city is vegan. He talks about it a lot when you, and it's, he's very visible about it. He actually wrote a book with his conversion story, right? Which was his health got so bad that he had a major incident that he just woke up one morning and it was like, I'm done. You know, I'm going to do this. The power in terms of storytelling of not again hearing over and over again the executive director or the CEO of climate related organizations or corporations saying, "We're gonna, you know, go renewable for whatever, but but people saying their personal conversion moment, their personal moment, and I pervert people that the word conversion sounds sort of religious, so so I'll <laughs> jump back. You know we don't need to say that, but that moment when someone had the realization and then how their life transformed from there related kind of is I come from a deeper background of marketing to women and looking at them as consumers and how they make decisions. So I'm, I'm constantly sort of aware of the gender differences in, in how people take on information. And the, if you, a lot of times with the going plant-based or something, you'll assume that it's all a bunch of women who are working out at health clubs. Like it's very sort of, right. Yeah. And so when you think about the best conversion stories for storytelling on climate stuff, is white people, often males in the middle of the country, who if they saw an example, or if they heard of an example, or heard a podcast, you know, interview somebody who was a white guy from the Midwest, right, who Me. previously drove a big truck or something, right, and now uses an e-bike for local transportation, that. Is an incredibly powerful story. That's one that's really worth telling, and that's one that will get a lot of listeners sort of going. What? Mm. That's the surprising validator, right? This, yeah. So you're that. looking for surprise. So you can look at, and I've I listen to a lot of journalism podcasts because the the question is always, how do you find your guests, right? And what yes. they say, right? And what they say is really interesting. And if you look at, and I've said this too for climate conferences, if you're looking at who you're gonna invite to speak or be on panels, look at the whole list and then look really closely and go, oh, who's the most interesting, surprising validator of that? Because when they say what they've done, it's gonna really resonate with the audience and be a big wow moment.
2: So in in your work, do you find, or do you have really some interesting stories about this kind of, we'll say conversion, that you, you, you wanna share?
0: Well, one of them is, recently I was a moderator for a panel at a conference called Green Biz Verge, and it was about a pilot project that LinkedIn did in terms of moving their food service in their San Francisco headquarters, I think it's during po- or just post-COVID when they're starting to get more people back into the cafeterias and stuff. They did a pilot project where they converted the meals. Say there were eight meals served every day. It used to be that five were had meat and dairy more traditional, and then three were vegan. What they did was they shifted so that five are vegan and three were meat, dairy, et cetera. And they worked with an organization called the Better Food Foundation that really knows how this process works. When we were talking on the dais, the panel about this, the LinkedIn, the chef behind it, I thought this was really interesting. Prior to the panel, I was talking to her and she said, the interesting thing is that I come at this from being a butcher. Oh. She said, I'm not, she said, and also, I'm not vegan, right? Which is fine. I mean, I'm here to say, I'm not this person that says you have to go vegan overnight because I firmly believe that once you start, your body's going to say, yeah, keep doing that. Yeah, exactly. But, but this woman is not vegan. And she said, coming from being a butcher and I just thought oh my gosh I said that's the story that has to be told more about what you're doing here and she said and this is a point but it's harder to, harder for someone who's a vegan to tell but it's really interesting and that is prior to being a vegan they would get big kind of chicken wings wrapped up in you know two per package mm-hmm. in for making meals and stuff and she said when they decided to do this then they really doubled down and understood that if they were going to serve meat for the meals that they were serving meat, they would buy a whole animal and really use all of the pieces of that animal very, very wisely and efficiently rather than just getting wings cut up in little packages and whatever. And so kind of more of an indigenous people's approach Interesting. to looking at food. Anyway, that my surprising validator is having a chef who's not vegan, who used to be a butcher, talk about the success and how tasty these plant-based meals were and kind of what happened. I feel like I want to have all sorts of people like her on a podcast.
2: Yeah. Well, I might be a surprising validator and I don't know if I've ever brought this up on this show before, but I, I'm a vegetarian and I also used to be a butcher when (laughs) I was in college. I Yeah, I, (laughs) Yeah. So I saw And Well, not just saw, I was actively involved behind the scenes of preparing the meat that you would take home. And if I fast forward like 10 years from that, I met a cattle rancher down in Mexico who became vegan. And the whole reason why is because he went to one of his kill floors Mm -hmm. and he was just mortified. Right. I mean, it wasn't how he butchered cattle growing up. They do it in a completely inhumane, terrible way. And just listening to his story and thinking back to what I did working in the butcher shop, right? That's when I switched to become a vegetarian. Just just thinking about everything that I knew was like, okay, wait a second.
0: <laughs> I, well, and I would say, Eric, that yes, I would. I mean, in my mind, it would be great if you Mentioned that a little bit more, right? So, and you, when I talk about the plant based or the vegan conversion, a lot of people go in, become plant based for different reasons. You had a really powerful moment, which was the realization of the animal, you know, and how that is. Other people go into it from health, like Eric Adams. I kind of went into it partially from health. I was really influenced by a person. Well, it's the a person that I interviewed for my first episode of Living Change, John Richards, who's a pretty well-known DJ at KEXP. I was in a marketing meeting there and realized that he was vegan. And I thought, oh, why am I not vegan? And I just went vegan, Interesting. but immediately felt the health. And then later I was like, oh my goodness, the climate implications. Well, right. this is what I've been in climate for like 10 years, right? So all that is to say that people get into moving in a plant-based direction for a variety of reasons and your reason is really interesting and would touch a lot of people like you with your background to hear it. So you are, yeah, fantastic, Mm -hmm. surprising validator for that. And I encourage you to get louder. (laughs) Okay,
2: all right, I'll, I'll try to do that. We'll take a quick commercial break here and then get back to the conversation.
1: young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation and how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. My name is Rachel Cifarelli and I'm part of the Climate Designers New Wave team. In the past few years, New Wave has released two reports exploring students' experiences of climate design education, or lack thereof, and what they hope to see in their classes. Now we want you, design educators, to use this research in your classrooms. And this summer, we're giving educators a chance to talk to the New Wave team directly. Twice a month, the New Wave researchers will be available to walk you through our findings, answer any questions you have, and help you implement actionable project briefs directly into your classroom. We'll also show you how to use our media kit to easily share the research with your students and how they can sign up to be a participant. Head to climatedesigners.org edu slash to sign up for a call with the New Wave team. Help us inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer.
2: Do you want to help design a better world? Start by subscribing to Evolve CPG, a podcast featuring the purpose-driven entrepreneurs,
0: executives, and consultants behind the most impact-driven brands in the world. You'll learn how innovative leaders are leaning into their purpose how better for
2: the world brands are scaling positive impact and how the product industry is solving some of the world's biggest problems. Be part of the evolution. Find Evolve CPG wherever you get your podcasts and visit EvolveCPG.com to learn more. So, yeah. So let's talk about your, your work with plant-based diets. I think that's a great transition. Yeah. 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 So the, there's a lot of, I think, out there. You know, you can go online, you can find a, find a lot of websites, the, the UN, the NIH, listing the benefits of a plant-based diet, whether it be vegetarianism or, or veganism. Can you maybe talk more about some of the more surprising insights that you found into that world, maybe working with 50 by 40 and some of the dialogues that's been going on?
0: Yeah. Well, to that point of kind of how I got into it and then I realized the climate stuff, you know, I started working with 50 for 40 not long after I went vegan myself. And it was all along that process that I learned more and more. One of the things is the land use stuff, which is there was a phrase that I love as a communications person that I heard through that group of people when I was working with them is stop growing food to feed food. So step back, stop growing food, which is crops, right? That are commodities to feed livestock, right? Because we're wasting land (laughs) to feed right when we could just be eating plants directly. And so I found that really powerful. And then if you want to link to it in the notes later, there's an amazing visual map of the country of the land you know what is land used for in the U.S. and it's just like gigantic percentage to feed livestock the land you grow crops that feed livestock once you see that that's another point where if you're it gets to this thing that's really interesting Eric and that is I find it hard to kind of take in that so many people in climate action advocates leadership or climate aware organizations at all haven't really intentionally moved toward a plant-based diet and aren't talking about it more loudly. Because once you look at this land use, and here we are in this horrible food security situation now with Ukraine, right, and Russia blocking the grain. Once you see the map of the country and how much land is used to grow crops for livestock, you almost, I would think that you would have to go minimally vegetarian overnight.
2: We'll have to share that link that map that
0: so. yeah, i'll make sure that you get that the other thing with that is the biodiversity kind of so going back to the amazon and deforestation the deforestation in the amazon forest is because they're making room to raise cattle like that mm-hmm. it is and it's if you look into it at all you'll be blown away and you will not want to eat any meat or animal products that come out of the big four industrialized agriculture. So one of the ways that we get to people moving plant-based is we talk about industrialized agriculture and how it's just a, it's a big mess and you don't want any part of it. When you start to dial in, you look at the meat at your grocery store, you're not going to be able to buy like much of anything at the grocery store in the meat aisle because it's all produced by one of these big four, many of whom are involved in deforestation of the amazon and that is a huge problem for the climate crisis as we know so everything is interconnected right these yeah and back to talking about you know how the big sexy topic tends to be energy but if you look at food system shift oh my goodness there are all these ways that we connect as humans and ways that we can make a difference by not buying or participating in it
2: yeah i saw a stat recently where I always feel guilty about flying somewhere, especially, yeah. yeah. And I saw the statistic, I think it's about 4% of our carbon emissions come from aviation. And if you really wanted to make a statement and a big, bigger impact, it's giving up meat. You can fly. You don't have to feel as guilty anymore because you have made such a, like you described there, growing food for food, right? Your, your deforestation. Yeah, there's so many interconnected problems with just the beef industry in general.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I would, you know, tell folks to pay attention to the food conversations at Climate Week coming up in September. And again, pay attention to food conversations at COP28. Um, mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, those kind of groups and gatherings have not convened enough or loudly enough on food. And so pay attention. And then I would say also, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to build a curriculum around, right. Or to think about teaching more effectively in classrooms at every level, you know, because I don't, I think this movement is finding some success in helping universities, you know, address food systems through their catering and their food service stuff. And that's college students, right. Who are interested in climate can jump on this. So there's hope in institutional shifts and things like that. But if you see them, name and fame them. You know, yes. Make them a program and thank those people who are spearheading those changes.
2: Well, I'm going to name and fame the sustainable design coordinators here at the University of Illinois who, for an event where there was catering, we eliminated meat from the, from the catering and actually saved money because that was the most important expensive component of the catering
0: fantastic i name and i name and fame them too put that in your notes like an extra like shout <laughs>
2: out university of illinois
0: yes yes see because it's it's to that point there's an organization i belong to an organization called women and climate that has a slack channel and has events across the world and there's a they make a point of if they're going to be hosting a dinner it's going to be vegan and so same thing with Greenbiz, like really shifting so that there's a lot more of a plant based offering at all these places. This is the way you do it. This is living change, right? My podcast mm-hmm. name at an organizational level. A living change at an organizational level is making sure that you have a plant based heavy catering, if not all plant based, right? And yes. that you think about transportation to your venue, not having to all be you know, big black SUVs, you know, et cetera, like that you're in a place where you could take a bus so that it's, you know, easy to take transit to get to the site, et cetera. So living change is a really interesting filter through which to see kind of things that are happening around you. And again, I would say name and fame, any living change examples you see in the world as loudly as you can on whatever platforms you're on.
2: Yeah, and speaking of transportation, you work in that area as well. And I'm wondering with living change, Are you finding, besides yourself, of course, some living change going on in that intersection of plant-based diets, and in particular, bicycling infrastructure in communities and then cities, or just in some sort of policy that might be developing where you live?
0: Yeah, well, I'm seeing it in that if you are awake to transportation emissions enough to start to think about bikes for local transportation which is my emphasis which is within like i mean i obviously do it for like five or six or seven mile radius but if you start to ride a bike or e-bike for your two mile or a regular bike for your two mile radius local transportation it's a huge deal what i'm seeing is that once you take a step to kind of dial in and go wait do i need to use my suv to you know get this can i Once you take a step like that, then you do become more aware of the little things that you can change in your life and are a little bit more open to being intrigued about maybe going meatless Monday. So they are connected, right? The other thing is that it's this thing that people in climate know, but the IPCC talks about how the four biggest things you can address, right, are buildings, energy efficiency, food, agriculture, and transportation, I believe. You can kind of correct me on that. Food and transportation are the two topics that I really dial into in my work and where I find there is crossover because my interview again with John Richards, also with Alex Fish, who was the second interview for Living Change, they both, like John was coming in, the interview was really about his plant-based bar, and then he was like, and then he started on his own accord talking about the amazing thing that e-biking his son to school, that change in his life has been amazing. I was talking with Alex Fish, who at the time was city council person in Culver City. He rides an e-bike for local transportation as much as possible. And he said that in the course of our conversation, he decided that he would go meet this Monday with his families. And so there's an opening kind of end. Right. Once you do one, you are like, oh, you kind of are reverse hacking. So you don't need a super high tech or really expensive tool. It's really fun to just go, oh. I can refuse to kind of be in that system mm-hmm. by riding a bike rather than driving my car, by eating more plant-based as opposed to meat and dairy. It's very interesting. It's very empowering to, to yeah. feel- I can see that. Impact, yeah.
2: Well, I'm not someone who rides my bike often and it kind of goes into public safety as, as, or safety on why I, I don't. And recently the Boston Globe couple others published articles on basically like the politics of like or or the bike lane controversies and then the conversation around that around politics of public safety and traffic and you wrote an article recently an interview you had with bowen ma i think british british columbia leader city leader about ways that you can break that cycle can you talk more about how we can break that cycle of that, I guess, is I don't feel super safe riding my bike where I live. How can we move forward really to make it easier for people like me to feel safe riding my bike to work every day?
0: Well, it's going to involve naming and faming and it's going to involve finding political leaders in small towns like similar to where you live and helping your leaders see... That it's a good political move for them to help people, you know, achieve and be able to ride a bike or choose less car transportation. So you name and vain leaders, or you help your political leaders see that this is possible. And that yeah. other political leaders across the country who ride their bike are getting a lot of good press for doing it. Mm-hmm. Right? So you kind of appeal to vanity in a leader. And then the other thing is there have been studies and there are ways to present this in a non-super right, left, et cetera, political manner, which is less car living. You can pitch that and you can message that to people who will continue to drive anyway, right? Because the idea is that there will be fewer cars on the road, right? Because so you position safe streets as for everybody and you there's all these messaging tools that you can use. And the idea is that this change this sort of change is already underway at lots of communities across the country already find one start Mm -hmm. using that as a tool to tell your political leader and then anytime there's a safe streets or healthy streets i don't know if you guys had any of that in your town during covid in seattle they blocked not enough but a couple of main drag streets down So that it was really accessible more for walking, biking, et cetera. And it was a huge hit. Yeah. So anytime a thing like that happens where they close down the street for an event, right, or a party, or they love that thing up, tell your city, man, I love that closed street. I got to know my community better. Tell your city leaders, I shop at those businesses more when there isn't like a 45 mile per hour speed limit out in front. Another organization that I have done some work with that I'm still, you know, really pushing on people is this Livable Communities Initiative, which is based in Los Angeles. And in my interview with Alex Fish in my podcast, we talk about that. And the whole idea is the livable community versus making it about bikes and transportation. Talk about livable community overall, Right. right, which goes to SDG 11, Sustainable Communities, And all the pieces that make a livable community, it's really hard for people to argue with that.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And so that's another kind of frame.
2: Yeah, I see this a lot, actually, with some recent changes in how I've seen petitions being distributed. And if it's successful, right, there's this additional thing to thank your state senator, your local mayor so it's not just that we should be advocating for the change but if it happens we should be thanking them and naming naming and faming them i guess right
0: well and to your point i actually had a conversation with communications person for another i think it was more of a food system thing i was talking to somebody on capitol hill and about their boss you know a representative or a senator and i said does this thing where you post Thank you, or you post like a message, I'd support XYZ. Does it really add up in kind of how they add things up as a number and then present it? They said yes. So if you are posting on Twitter or Facebook and you say thank you for forwarding Bill 1234, Senator, whatever, right? If you do that, they can count that and say constituents love this, right? 3,000 of them said they loved it on Twitter. So I had been under the kind of impression that it was ridiculous and they weren't looking at it anyway. Right. And and the point is, is that if you tag them, literally tag your leader, whatever platform you're on and use a hashtag or whatever for that bill or that policy or whatever happened, it will count. And the other thing about all this is this idea of building social capital. And this is a little secret, right? Which is if you start to be a namer and famer and a thinker, Your name will be warmed by the staff of your political leader so that if you ultimately one day email them and say, hey, could I have a meeting or, hey, could I express an interest in this or that topic that you'll take seriously? Yes, they will, because they're familiar with your name and you've been appreciative of what they've been doing so far and really honest. That's you're building social capital. They're interested in building trust with you. It's a circular love fest, right? So. (laughs) building that connection only helps you for future connections and kind of input and feedback with your political leader.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, the next question I have for you is one that my co-producer Bianca wrote, and I love it. And I can see it as a design project, right? So it's a multi-part question here. But the first really is like, I wonder how green sustainable cycling is. That's something that I've been thinking about. Bike Raider found that while making bicycles and the food to power them carries a carbon cost, as you would imagine, right? Like you have to make something, you need energy, you need materials. However, cycling is among the lowest carbon per kilometer mode of transportation, even better than walking. So wondering what you're as a rider yourself, I'm assuming an activist and a consultant. What's your take on that analysis? Is it do you think it's accurate or or and compared to walking because I'm 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 surprised by it as well.
0: Oh, well, I am not someone who would understand quite how that statistic came about, but I will say that getting back on a bike and I've been riding a bike for transportation, a regular bike for transportation since I started out of practicality, in mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon, before they had infrastructure, I just realized it was so much faster than taking a bus even. So I've been riding a bike for a really long time. And now I have an e-bike. I ride both and I hardly ever drive the car that I have. The idea of beginning to use a bike for transportation completely opens up your world. You start using it so much more. You efficiently get around everywhere. Your The health benefits, you know, the kind of externalities or the full system of things that that impacts and you can travel longer distances right than if you're yeah working. i think i think when you look at the whole package and all the value chain or everything that's in it it makes sense the other thing that i talk about a lot in my work is this idea of joy and when you are on a bike again after so long even if you're you only feel safe riding a mile to take your child to school and back the joy in that Sinks in with you and you remember it from being a kid. And then you start to go, wow, how can I bring more of this to my life? I think it's a little harder for walking, maybe to do that. Right. Maybe yeah. it's the wind hair, right? Or maybe it's that you can go from one neighbor to the other pretty quickly. Also being on a bike, it just as with walking, but you just get this totally different view of your community and understanding of businesses you may want to visit later, etc. There's something about the time, the speed. Yes. Right? And and, yeah. and then so the joy is embedded in your body from when you were, however old you were. I don't know, how old are we when we Oh, like, I loved riding bikes as a kid, so. Five, right? Well, whenever you learned to ride a bike, there was this joy thing that stuck in you and it's waiting to get out. So it once is. you get back up again, it completely changes your life. So I, it's this whole package, I think, of biking, that gets to that number that you were talking about. Yeah,
2: when I'm thinking about this from like a design educator perspective, I'm thinking about the whole story or the, the whole system that you mentioned in that if the students were able to map or out the system, right, they will probably see the time component there in that if I typically walk to work and it takes me 30 minutes, but biking takes me 17 minutes, and I look at the weather and it's going to rain in 20 minutes. Then I'm thinking I, I better bike because I can get there in time. And if I'm just the continual walker, I'm like, well, I better drive. Right. Because I'm going yeah, yeah. So I yeah, can yeah. see like the, the time becoming crucial and minimizing sort of that. Maybe that's how they got up with that carbon per kilometer uh, number based on that whole system of, of how humans are. Right. Cause yeah. we're, we're weird creatures.
0: Yeah, and I think the timing is the other thing because we live in this society where it's like rush rush rush. One of the things that just does not get mentioned enough about riding a bike for transportation is it is completely and utterly consistent. If you take if it takes you 10 minutes to ride your bike to X, it's always going to take you that long. Yeah. You don't for parking, you don't you get you're around traffic. So the consistency in time is unbelievable. And if you talk about joy, you just know it's going to take you 10 minutes to get there. There's nothing like it. And I don't think people are aware that they have access to that. They can get that. They start to think about riding a bike. And if your location is unsafe for riding a bike, now's the time to start working on your political leaders, not in a name and shame way, right? But in a name and fame way, have them be seen standing next to a bike or give them a try on an e-bike at some festival and take a picture of it. Like Give them the way to position themselves as being vaguely open to bikes as infrastructure and then work that, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, in Seattle, I know they have a bus, right? They have public transportation. And I'm wondering, this again, it opens up my design mind here for like information design, but what's the cost, the carbon cost of riding a bike versus riding a bus, for instance?
0: I'm not, I'm not, I don't know all the statistics on that. So that would be a really good thing for your design thinking, you know, to find out. Yeah, to find out. Um, But It might be interesting also, I've taken, there's a carbon accounting kind of software called Clever Carbon that somebody I know, Michelle Lee, founded. It's really interesting. It's one of those things where you plug in, are you vegan? How do you, what's your main form of transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Those are so interesting. And there may be something to kind of doing that or maybe talking to them at some point, but I- What was the name of that group again? Clever Carbon. Clever Carbon. Michelle Lee, and I'd love to introduce you because it's a cool thing and there is design thinking, which also makes me, I want to ask you a question, which is how much does communications strategy and messaging come into design thinking or what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think it comes in enough in the way that you've been talking about it. And that is like that name and fame I think they're. I think a lot of designers fall into the trap of what are they used to creating? Let's go back to those type of, I guess, comfortable solutions to make something where I think that idea of design thinking or systems thinking can push you outside of that comfort zone. At least that's been my experience. And so... I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of where I like immediately went to.
0: Well, I think there's an opportunity there then in, if you're looking at the whole systems, thinking about the messaging and framing as part of that, because one of the things, even an example of looking at COVID with these healthy streets things, you know, what was the signage? What were the campaigns like? How did they nudge? What were the percentage of people that took that on? That whole kind of communications campaign part was huge to that. And then it does contribute to the number of people who are biking or walking, et cetera, et cetera. So the other thing I would say is a tool for me and something I refer to a lot is that book by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, Nudge, and the idea of the nudge. And if you think about it's like more plant-based options versus dairy and meat options, what is that going to do? Well, yeah, it's going to help a lot more people pick that option, right? And then if there's signage or if you see a lot of people suddenly riding their bike on X street, you better believe a lot more people are going to go, I'm going to try biking. So how that nudge works and really incorporating that nudge into what your students of the curriculum, what's going on in kind of education here, I think would be really powerful.
2: Yeah, that leads me to ask about, thinking about like these these unconventional paths into climate that you've been talking about, the the surprising validator are there, with, with biking in particular, some, maybe some surprising validator statistics, right, that might help uh, people think about it more? I'm, I'm trying to th- go into the idea of not just environment here, but vanity, like you're going to get really nice quads. <laughs> Are there some things
0: well, that... I mean, I to your point, Eric, I think that the vanity stats would be really good. Yeah. I don't think that they exist, But I think the nice quads would totally appeal. The abs. The abs. The other thing is the competition. So one of the things I see, because I've been monitoring this for years, are it sure does look to me like a lot more women mayors get this biking thing. Interesting. So if you look at Anne Hidalgo or Michelle Wu in Boston.
2: Oh, yeah. She's great.
0: Right. Barbara Buffalo, who I interviewed for Living Change, another amazing example, the women mayors. And there are a lot of guys that get this, too. But women mayors seem to be bolder. Anna Hidalgo in Paris gets written up all the time for her just saying, this is the way it is. And I think that that can peeve some people in Paris. But it's really interesting to look at what she's brave enough to do. So I think this political will, right. we need people that are ready to push it a little bit and be brave about that. Because what happens is constituents will be like, whoa, they're brave enough, right? They're going to pull more people along by being a teeny bit bolder. And I think women mayors are making a really interesting difference here.
2: That's great to hear. And of course, you know, this season we're talking with, we're naming and faming women in climate. And so it's great to continually bring up those who I haven't talked with, but who are doing great work too. And unfortunately we're running out of time, but we're getting to now one of my favorite questions. And that is, You're a design educator. You're not just a podcaster and and climate leader, but you're also a design educator now, and what would you ask uh, a class of designers to tackle in part of a project or, or a semester?
0: I think that we just mentioned it, which is, I think it would be really interesting to look at the vanity factor. Oh yeah. And how that nudges. So going back to that term nudge, what are some nudges that we haven't yet tried, and that are unusual suspect nudges? Right. Uh, right. Unusual suspect nudges would be vanity. I think if you look at podcasts of you know health and wellness podcasters, and again, typically a lot of male health and wellness podcasters. Like, how do they get their audiences are huge and deep and rich? And it's really interesting what if they started to talk a lot more about riding a bike for transportation? And and I'm going to say for transportation, because a lot of times people are like, I ride a bike, which means that they cycle for a long trip, you know, 20, 30, 40 mile trip on the weekends. That's right. not what we're talking about here, right? right. So I think for, for a class or a curriculum or kind of a project, I think that pulling in the vanity stats would be really interesting. And then looking at the messaging you know the ab testing or whatever on the messaging that really helped that in terms of looking at the whole system
2: yeah and then like the outcome of that right the personal outcome of that is obvious but then if it increases the amount of bike traffic right then it also can expedite more policy change in that community where hey well now we have like 10 times more cyclists our bike lanes need to be rethought or we need to add bike lanes or, you know, a list of different things for increasing public safety around cycling as a way of commuting.
0: Right. I guess to your point, building for the fact that if it starts to be, if it starts to gain any momentum at all, what is the trajectory? How much faster are they going to need to be ready, prepared for more people biking and all that? Like what, how quickly does this scale and what, how what are the phases in terms of its scaling that can then end up happening so that you can be ready for it? An interesting case study, I know we got to leave in a second, is this idea of thinking about mobility and transportation in Los Angeles during the Olympics in 2028, right? So they have got to get on the stick because their transit, their transportation, right? It just, they can't deal. It's a car culture there. Right, they got to get on the stick with buses, et cetera, et cetera. So looking at them as a case study what they could potentially lead if they did things right. And moving from there, I think, has a lot of fun as a story and as something to examine.
2: I agree. And thank you, Andrea, for coming on Climify today. And I really appreciate your time. And before you go, I'd love to know again where we can find you online, including your Living Change podcast.
0: Yes. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. I love talking with you about a topic that is it like immediately on my brain all the time, but I can see how fun it yeah, is. To yeah. it. <laughs> um, people can find me. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Andrea Learned. It. I'm in Seattle. I'm supposed to put Andrea Learned Seattle. It'll pop up. The podcast is, you can get it on any platform you're on. If you search on living, change, climate, those three words, it should come up right away. The other thing is you can get to it on my site where all the episodes are embedded and the transcripts are there. If you go to livingchangepodcast.com. And then I'm on Twitter, Andrea Learned. I'm on TikTok, Andrea is Living Change. I just started being on Instagram, Andrea Living Change. One day they'll all be coordinated, but now they aren't. Um, Anyway, and I'm just about to launch a newsletter on Substack. So please follow me and stay tuned. And I really appreciate this conversation. And it's been so fun learning about Climify, Eric. Thank you. Yeah, and... On LinkedIn, I learned that you're a a Michigan alum. Is that, is that true? I am. Go blue.
2: Me too. Go blue.
0: High five, (laughs) go blue.
2: Yes. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Andrea. And and I look forward to listening more to your show and seeing more that you're doing and all the work. My pleasure. Thanks so much. This podcast is co-produced by Bianca Sandico and me, a big special thanks to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding. Matul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help. Brandy Nichols and Michelle Nguyen for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers.